Thomas was born July 2nd, 1489. He studied theology at Cambridge in England in 1503, where he would remain as a teaching fellow at Jesus College. He would have remained in the academy had it not been the political factions and political campaigning that was going on and surrounded much of his life. In 1533, he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest position in England to give advice on church matters. He would not come under, it would not rather be until later in life that he would come to know and be convinced of Protestant doctrines of justification. Eventually, Thomas would die for his role in reforming the Church of England and leading the church towards a more biblical stance on justification. And so, on March 21st, 1556, Thomas was burned in effigy, not before he gave an entire recantation of his Protestant beliefs, but after spending some time in the Queen's Tower, he was brought out to die, where he asked that he would be allowed to put his hand to the flame, that his hand be burned first, for it was his hand who had written out all of those recantations weeks earlier. And so in his death, he would stand again on the confession of faith that justification is by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. For he had offended God by making such false recantations. But it was Thomas's theology, not his death, that helped reform the Church of England. In the summer of 1547, Thomas Cramner wrote a homily called Salvation of Mankind by Only Christ Our Savior from Death and Sin Everlasting. Listen to what he writes. Justification is not the office of man, but of God. For man cannot justify himself by his own works, neither in part nor in whole. For that were the greatest arrogance and presumption of man that the Antichrist could set up against God. To affirm that a man might by his own works take away and purge his own sins and so justify himself. But justification, he goes on to write, is the office of God only. And it is not a thing that which we render unto him, but which we receive of him. Not which we give to him, but which we take of him by his free mercy and by the only merits of his only most dearly beloved son, our Redeemer, Savior, and Justifier, Jesus Christ. Again, it was Cramner's theology, his biblical understanding of justification, that would bring about the greatest change in England, in the English-speaking world. That salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. Friends, this is what we confess, that nothing in us merits God's grace. That He lavishes His grace upon us in Christ despite our wretchedness. Now there is nothing inherent in us that merits God's love for us. Friend, this is the point we want to consider this morning as we reflect upon Paul's prayer to the church at Colossae. That God has saved us and is in the process of transforming us through a knowledge of Him. That salvation is so that we might not only be saved from our sins, but that we might come to experience the one true and living God. 
God saved us that we might know Him, not as the wrathful God, but rather as Savior. It's the one who has bestowed upon us the riches of Christ. Friends, if you're just kind of joining us in our study this morning, we've been considering over the last number of weeks this short letter to the church in Colossae. And Paul began with thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8, calling on the church to give thanks for the evidence of God's grace in their lives. As Paul received word from their pastor about their progress in the faith, Paul begins by just reflecting on the fact that there was tremendous evidence in their life, testified by their pastor, that God's grace had in fact taken root in their life. We learned that you and I demonstrate that we're following Jesus by bearing fruit. And we're going to consider that point a little bit more this morning. And so as Paul turns from thanksgiving, he shifts to prayer. But as you'll notice here this morning that while he moves from thanksgiving into prayer, he ends yet again with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving surrounds his prayer as a reminder that redemption is God's work from beginning to end. By positioning all of his theological teaching around thanksgiving, it reminds the believer that this is God's work, not our own. Friend, this is why we can sing with such confidence, in Christ alone. It's not in Christ and me It's not in Christ and my goodness. It's not in Christ and my obedience. It's in Christ alone. Thus we come with gratitude this morning. Friends, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be considering verses 9 through 14. Let me just exhort you to read ahead this week to probably the pinnacle of section in all of your Bible next week. The sermon won't be any better, but the passage will be all the greater as we meditate next week on the preeminent Christ, the creator of the cosmos. Well, friends, this week, though, we're in verses 9 through 14. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My friends, Paul here points out to us in way of example that as Christians, we ought to regularly pray that God would grow us in spiritual health. In other words, as Christians, we ought to understand that spiritual growth is something we ought to ask for. That spiritual growth is not ultimately generated in us, but it happens to us by the means that God has given unto us. 
That is, that we ought to pray that we would grow in spiritual health, having the strength, the spiritual strength, to patiently endure with joyful gratitude as members of Christ's kingdom. We need help on this journey called the Christian life. And we gain the help we need through prayer. So for us this morning, I want to encourage us in prayer, that we ought to pray. Now the question I have before you is, what do you pray for? If we were to look at your prayer list this morning, do you often pray the way the Bible teaches you to pray? Of course, it's not wrong to pray for spiritual need, or rather for physical need. Not wrong to pray for healing, not wrong to pray that one's health might improve, but do your prayers encompass more of physical need or spiritual need? And so this morning, Paul outlines three ways Christians ought to pray regularly. Three ways we ought to regularly pray in our life. First, pray for greater knowledge of God's will. We see that there in verses 9 and 10 as Paul leads that in such a way that he prays that they would grow in the knowledge of God's will. Then secondly, we'll see in verse 11 that we ought to pray for spiritual strength to follow Christ. We need help following Jesus. Third and finally, we'll see that we ought to pray with joyful gratitude for our deliverance and redemption there in verses 12 through 14. Well, let's consider first here that as Christians, you ought to pray for greater knowledge of God's will. Paul begins here in verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul says that upon hearing of this church whom he never attended a service at, whom he never met anyone outside of their pastor and Onesimus, that's the only people he's ever met before, from this congregation, from this people group, he says, listen, since I've heard of your faith, I haven't stopped praying. That doesn't mean that Paul just sort of just wandered through life praying for these people, but rather he knew that they were on a spiritual journey that required spiritual power. He recognized that they needed something. They needed divine intervention in their life. This is why, look at what he says. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you. Implied in this word is that Paul is petitioning the Father on behalf of these dear saints. He recognizes a need in their life. And you'll see that he prayed in three ways. Those are the three points of our sermon this morning. First, he prayed by asking that you may be filled. The second point, as I just highlighted, verse 11, that you may be strengthened. And then the third one, number verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. These are the three ways he leads them to pray. And we notice here as he begins his prayer, look what he says there in verse 9, asking that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. Paul's desire for these Christians is that they would know the will of God. That they would know God better. That they would come under the influence of God's revelation. 
Now, knowledge here is not merely understanding of facts, but rather the Bible presents the idea of biblical wisdom. Throughout the prophets, and particularly through the Proverbs, you see that biblical wisdom is gained through the revelation of God's Word. That the fear of the Lord, it's a, it's a posture in one's life that says, God, I'm going your way and not my way. Biblical wisdom is, is abandoning our own will that we might go God's will. And so, throughout the prophets and throughout the Proverbs, there is this orientation giving where the, prophet, the prophets rather, are pointing to the law. They're pointing to the revelation of God through the law. And the Proverbs are a reflection of the Word of God as revealed. And, and so, the, the Apostle Paul here. He doesn't just say, look, we're going to go gain God's wisdom by looking to the clouds in the sky. But that they would gain, notice what he says, knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, this is a spiritual activity. And when Paul uses the word spiritual, he doesn't mean an esoteric, individualistic experience, but that which is brought about by the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is what Jesus taught his apostles. Jesus says, listen, when I'm sending you, I'm not sending you alone, but I'm sending you with the helper. Friends, this is what we considered two weeks ago. So if you kind of forgot where we were there, you just go back and listen. The point being is that the Apostle Paul is giving divine revelation of the will of God. In other words, where do you find God's will? In the Bible. In the pages of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation is God's will. And what Paul is desiring here is that they would come under the sway of God's will for humanity. To come to the knowledge of God's will is to come to an understanding of the mind of God. Paul wrote to the church in Rome in this way, that their minds would be renewed. You see, we have to change the way we think. And by regularly studying the scriptures, what happens is, is we abandon our way of thinking and come under the sway of God's way of thinking. How does God view the world? How does, how, how does God view man? How does God view our rebellion against sin? This is how we come to know the will of God. And so we need to understand here in verse 9 that it comes to us passively. In other words, we don't seek it out, but rather it is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll hear me emphasize this so often, and I'll emphasize it again. One of my favorite verses in all the Bibles, Romans chapter 10, the whole chapter. It says, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, we receive knowledge, we receive the faith to believe through the regular means of God's grace. What is that means of God's grace? How do we receive revelation? Through the regular preaching of God's word. That's how it happens. That's how it, that's how it happens. Such that the sermon, the point of the sermon, is driven from, not what the preacher wants to talk about that day, but particularly from the point of the passage. And then it's applied to the life of God's people. So we want to know and understand God better in and through His Word. 
And in doing so, notice what results from it. Look at verse 10. That so as we come to know God's will, verse 10 results in to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see the spiral that he sort of talked? This isn't a building block, do one and then the next and then the next, but it's a spiraling effect, isn't it? As you pray for the knowledge of God's will, it will result in, as you come under the sway of God's will for your life, then you will obey him. You will walk in a manner worthy and pleasing to him, and you will bear fruit, and as you're bearing fruit, what will happen is is you're going to grow in a deeper knowledge of God's word. You're going to become to know God better and better. But Paul makes two particularly important points here, doesn't he? Number one, we ought to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Our walk, as he says to the church in Ephesians, ought to match our confession. This is what he says to the church in Ephesus. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, or worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Or as he says to the church in Corinth, and there in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, as you are saints. In other words, he says, act like what you are. As Christians, we grow in the knowledge of God's will day by day, is, and by doing so, we bear spiritual fruit. Christians bear fruit. And we bear fruit, notice what he says, in every good work. We ought to be increasing in good works. Notice Paul doesn't say that these good works merit God's love for us, but they flow from God's love for us in Christ. You see, when we grow in the knowledge of his will, then we grow in spiritual understanding, and therefore we grow in holiness. Well, this is the promise that God gave through the prophet Ezekiel and through Jeremiah 31. Both the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel foretold a day in which the Spirit would be poured out on the people of God, and therefore they would walk in a manner. They they wouldn't need to be taught the law. They would come to know the law through the Spirit's work in their life. Friend, the point is clear. Christians grow in the knowledge of God's will. We do not remain stagnant, but grow to continue to grow to understand God's wisdom and gain spiritual understanding of the things of God. We do not study God's word merely to be able to pass some Bible quiz. But as we've said over the last number of weeks, that we might know God better. You see, the more you know someone, the more you know what they like. You might know what your spouse's favorite food is, and so on your anniversary or on a special occasion, you fix their favorite food because you know them. Or if you know they don't like a particular food, you won't fix that food. You'll avoid it. When we know what our kids like and don't like, we we often tailor what we do based on those things. Well, friends, as you come to know God better, you'll know what He likes and what He doesn't like. You'll avoid sin, not because you don't want God to be angry with you. You'll avoid sin because it despises him. It's, it's, it's a rebellion against him. It grieves him. 
Friend, how does this passage inform your prayer life? Are these the things you pray for regularly? Is it, does this kind of make the top of the list? Or is this, you know, God, if I get time, maybe I'll submit my life. Do you understand that sometimes our prayers are so informed by our emotions and our flesh and not informed by the will of God at all? Paul purposely prays these Christians would live their lives in such a way as would be worthy of the Lord. Friend, is your Christian character worthy of the Lord? The way you live this week, uh, the things you said, the way you thought, is it worthy of what you've received from the Lord? Is it worthy to be called Christ-like? For the life that is worthy of the Lord is one that is bountiful in good works and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what he says is worthy. That's what's worthy. Friend, these two evidences of salvation will continue to mark true disciples of Christ. Good works and a growing knowledge of the one true and living God. Lord, look at this passage and see, friend. As one grows in the knowledge of God, they, as a result, bear fruit and again grow in a deeper understanding of God. Do you want to know God better? Then pray that you would know Him better. Do you want to bear fruit? Then pray that you bear fruit in your life. Friends, as Christians, we ought to regularly pray for a greater knowledge of God's will. His will, friend, is revealed to us through His Word. And by knowing Him better, we will, as a result, follow Him. Friend, but we see here as Paul continues in prayer that we need to pray for spiritual strength to follow God's will. See, there's a difference between knowing the will of God and obeying the will of God. You might know what God's will is, and the question is, are you following His will? Are we submitting ourselves? Are we coming under the sway of His will? Well, notice what he then goes on to pray in verse 11. May you be strengthened, he says. His main prayer in this verse is that they be strengthened. Well, how does He desire them to be strengthened? With all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul prays in this particular passage that they would have power, spiritual strength, to follow God's will. Notice here the basis of this power. According to, Paul's language here is kind of hanging off this word power, that they don't have just any old power out there, but rather that the standard or basis of the power that they would experience in their life would be the power of God. That they would be strengthened with His glorious might. Now you want to think about this for a moment. Paul is praying that they would experience the kind of power that was made evidently visible in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kind of power is resurrection power. This is what we heard earlier in the scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23, where Paul prayed to the church in Ephesus that they would know the power of God. 
And then he goes on to describe the power of God as displayed through the death and resurrection of Christ. Friend, that power is available to us as believers. Because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that is indwelt by the believer. This is why we celebrate the new birth or the regeneration This is why Ezekiel 36 and and Jeremiah 31 is so important to the new covenant. You see, we are enabled to believe by the power of the Spirit, and we are sustained by the power of the Spirit. So it is His work from beginning to end. As we heard so faithfully from our brother Josh in his prayer of thanks, praying that He who began a good work in you would carry it into completion. The glories of the gospel of Christ is that it is his work from beginning to end. It it does not depend on us. Or as we heard from Cramner's confession, that it is God's. And this is a good Anglican, friend. Not merely a Southern Baptist confessing. This is what the scripture teaches. And so we ought to pray for spiritual strength and understand that that power is from God himself. His glorious might. It is power that is greater than any other power. There's a lot of powerful people in this world. Whether it be in local, communities, state, national, global. We can feel helpless. There's people, maybe in your family... Paul reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. But there is a spiritual battle going on around us that the eyes cannot see. Paul is reminding these young Christians not to be given into fear. No power of hell, no scheme of man. Those are two powerful things, aren't they? The devil's kind of scary. But sometimes what's worse, the scheming of man or the spiritual powers of darkness? As Christians, we have a greater power than any of those powers. And that power is not inherent in us. It's not that we hold fast to Christ, but that He holds fast to us. You see? He keeps us. He secures us. This is why Paul is praying here, you see. He's praying here because he wants them to recognize, friend, don't turn to your own spiritual bootstraps. Don't turn to your own spiritual strength. Rather, rely on the Spirit's power in you. Power made evident in the fact that you've been born again, friend. May you be strengthened, he said, with all power according to his glorious might. For what purpose, he says. Look at verse 11. For all endurance and patience. We receive power, not that we would just use it for our own selfish ends. We receive spiritual power that we might endure. 
You see, people ask me all the time, you know, well, what, you know whether or not that person's saved or what about grandma and grandpa? I'm just not sure they're in heaven or hell. I don't know. I'm not the judge. Jesus is. And Jesus says that saving faith is enduring faith. You know, I'd ask, well, how do we know someone's saved? Well, because they endured to the end. They finished the race. It's only those who are finished who are ever genuinely saved. And this is what Paul says here. You see, we need the spiritual strength to endure to the end. We need power apart from ourselves in order to get there. We will not arrive at the celestial city save the power of God at work in us. And so he prays, Christians, you will not, young Colossians, listen to me, you need God's power to endure. They were being thrown into the wolves. False teachers had crept into the church. They were being facing, he says it this way, I say this to you, chapter 2, verse 4, that in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul says, I'm writing to you that you might not be deluded, he says, into plausible arguments. In other words, the arguments that were being thrown their way made sense. They were plausible. They might be true. They, they were, they were half-truths masquerading as the truth. And, and he says, listen, you need spiritual power in order to endure against these wiles of the devil. And so we, we need to pray in such a way that we would be mature as Christians. You see, mature Christians walk in a worthy way before the Lord as they are strengthened by God with all power, so as to endure difficulties in a fallen world. If you think you can do this life of following Jesus apart from the Spirit, you are a fool. And you will, you will crash and burn, friend. We need the Spirit's power. We need patience. What, what do we need patience for? Well, we need patience because Jesus hasn't come again. We need to patiently endure. It's like, come on, Jesus, it's time already. Let's go, come on. When are you coming again? Let's put an end to the misery and the sorrow of this world. Let's just get on with it. I can't wait. No, no, we need patience to endure this life. We need God's strength to endure life's most difficult challenges, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Friend, I wonder how are you tempted to find strength outside of the Spirit. What are some of the ways that you look for strength to get through the day? Perhaps it's alcohol. Perhaps it's food, entertainment. You just sort of numb to the world around you. Perhaps for you, it's your work. You're a workaholic. Perhaps it's your children or grandchildren being distracted and taken up by them. Perhaps it's the pursuit of education. If, if I just achieve this next degree, then I'll have arrived. See, all of those are forms of finding power apart from the Spirit. 
for endurance and patience. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the connection between walking in a worthy way before the Lord and your need for spiritual strength? Do you know why you're fumbling so much? Because it's you that's doing it, not God. Look what the Apostle Paul says right here in this this letter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's like, wow, what a, what a mission statement for a church. And then he goes on to say, verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with what? All his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. In other words, Paul's like, man, I work harder than anybody else on the street. I'm the hardest working preacher, but hold on. Let me, let me just pause you for a moment. He says, it's actually God he's working in me. So it's really, he gets the glory. Friend, that is the testimony of the Christian life. We bear fruit. We, we grow in the knowledge of God because God is at work in us both to will and for his good pleasure. Christians ought to live a life in submission to God's will. This is basic to what it means to be a Christian. Christians are those who are following Christ, that are doing the will of Christ as revealed in his word. But we do not go at this alone. We, we need the Spirit's power to endure, to follow the will of God. And finally, friend, we see here in these final verses... We respond to God's work for us and in us with gratitude. Notice how Paul concludes his prayer. With joy, uh, most likely joy then is connected to giving thanks, uh, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. In other words, he says, We ought to reflect upon what God is doing in our life, and it ought to lead us to gratitude. Notice here, he says, joyful gratitude for your deliverance. You've been delivered, saints. We ought to give thanks to the Father who's qualified you. Notice the passiveness of this. Not because you were worthy, not because there was anything inherent in you, not because, man, God looked down through the corridors of time and said, man, I need him on my team. How arrogant of us to think of such things. But rather because he has set you apart to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now Paul here is using some Old Testament language that finds its fulfillment in the new covenant. The inheritance of the saints. The saints is an Old Testament word referring to the people of God. And he says the inheritance. So what's the Old Testament inheritance? What did the the Jews get from God? Well, they got land, right? And he says, listen to me. He says, the inheritance has come to both Jews and Gentiles. The saints in light, being the people of God, have received inheritance. This is similar to what Paul will tell the church in Ephesus when he says there is no longer Jew and Gentile, but all are one in him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
So there's this enveloping together of Jew and Gentile into one new people such that he'll write to the church in Colossae later in chapter 3, verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but, but Christ is all and in all. He's like, hey, hey, Colossians, listen to me. I want you to understand you ought to be grateful you were once not a people, but now you are a people. You see, when we recognize that we do not merit any of what God has done, that it is his work from beginning to end, it results in a spirit of immense gratitude as he modifies the word giving thanks with the word joyful. Joyful gratitude. In other words, we're joyful because we understand, I don't deserve this. We've been delivered. Of course, all of this language of inheritance and being delivered in verse 13 pictures this Old Testament idea that the, that the people of God, enslaved, were delivered unto the promised inheritance. They were delivered from captivity in Egypt and given over to a new land. And, and all of that in the story of the Bible finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the new Israel, who then is inviting his people into these precious promises. And so not only are we joyful for our deliverance, but for our redemption, he says. Verse 13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We we had a change of citizenship, if you were. We were once a part of another kingdom. And Jesus came into that kingdom, and he gathered his people up, and he delivered them into a new kingdom. We've been bought, redeemed, to buy back. We've received forgiveness of our sins. Friend, through the redemption procured through His Son, Jesus Christ, God has marvelously brought Gentiles into the share of the saints' inheritance that they ought to joyfully give thanks to Him. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And if you're united with Jesus, then those promises are yours. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, that Christian maturity stems from a proper, thankful relationship to God, not as a remote or unconcerned being, but as the wise and loving father of his people. In other words, mature Christians ought to be the most grateful in the room. Friend, are you grateful for what God has done for you in Christ? Are you grateful for His work? Do you recognize that your lack of gratitude is a confession that that you think that somehow you merited God's grace? That somehow you deserve to be saved? Friend, none of us deserve any of this but it is given to us freely by the gift of God's grace. Friend, this ought to be something we celebrate with joy, with excitement. As we are reminded that we are saved by grace and not by works. God God has and His purpose is to redeem a people for His own possession. 
Friend, verses 13 and 14 ought to give you immense assurance that you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone, you've been delivered. You're no longer a slave. Stop acting like a slave. And start acting like a free person that you are in Christ. J.C. Ryle, a bishop in the Church of England around the turn of the 19th century, once wrote, Do we desire to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we wish to make progress in our religion and become strong Christians and not mere babes in spiritual things? Then let us pray daily for more faith and watch our faith with most most jealous watchfulness. Here is the cornerstone of our religion. A flaw or weakness here will affect the whole condition of our inner man. According to our faith, we will be the degree of our peace, our hope, our joy, our decision in Christ's service, our boldness in confession, our strength in work, our patience in trial, our resignation in trouble, our sensible comfort in prayer. All, he writes, all will hinge on the proportion of our faith. Happy are those who know how to rest their whole weight continually on a covenant God. To walk by faith and not by sight. Friend, we ought to pray for the spiritual strength to endure. May we not forfeit our peace, but take all things now and forever to God in prayer, giving ourselves to pray in these ways. Let's pray. God, it is our prayer that we might grow in the knowledge of you. Father, I pray that we might know you better. That we may be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we will walk in a manner worthy of King Jesus, of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, our Heavenly Father, who has qualified each and every one of us that are in Christ to share in this great inheritance. Father, it was you that has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. This has been your work from beginning to end. 